I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. The Democrats have their presumptive nominee, Joe Biden. But is the party prepared to wage an election campaign? There are yet more primaries to conduct in states still grappling with the coronavirus, a convention that may or may not come off in Milwaukee this August, and a fall campaign where President Trump and the Republicans hold a huge fundraising lead. We'll talk to DNC Chairman Tom Perez about how the party is planning to meet these challenges. And we'll talk to Yahoo News' Jenna McLaughlin about the U.S. intelligence community's investigation into how the coronavirus got started in the first place and the evidence, still circumstantial, that it may have come from an accident at a Chinese lab. All that and more on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence Tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So as we speak, we just uh, got the reports out of Wisconsin that during that primary two weeks ago, seven people came down with the coronavirus, six who went to the polls, one poll worker. And while that might not seem like a huge number, it is a reminder that there are still fears, legitimate fears out there about how we're going to hold elections, both in the primaries coming up and, of course, in the general this fall. Look, we may be in the middle of a pandemic in the fall when people vote for president. All you have to do is look at history to see that these pandemics have second waves, sometimes second and third waves. And sometimes when they come back, they come back with a fury that they didn't have the first time around. That was that true. was that was the case in this in the Spanish flu uh, influenza in 1918. It was the second Absolutely. wave that killed Absolutely. more people than the initial breakout. Right. And it came back in the fall. And so this, you know, so many things in this period that we're living through are unprecedented and uh, add to that list an election, potentially a uh, an incredibly consequential election, election in the middle of a pandemic. Some of these primaries that we're having are kind of dry runs uh, in some ways for what could be happening in November. And, you know, in some ways they have not gone particularly well. You just cited what happened in Wisconsin where we saw those awful lines of people social distancing waiting to vote and uh, clearly some people exposing themselves to to the virus. On the bright side, turnout in Wisconsin among Democrats was just about as high as it was in, in 2016. And so if the states can really ramp up mail-in voting, 
absentee voting, then maybe we can, you know, avert the catastrophe that uh, people are, are talking about and continue to exercise our rights and uphold our democracy. But it ain't going to be easy. And it'll be interesting to hear from uh, Tom Perez um, how the DNC is uh, dealing with this challenge. One thing I want to just mention, because this is something that our colleague John Ward um, has written about, and I don't think this has sunk in. I don't think most people know about this and will be talking to Chairman Perez about it. I'd like to hear what he has to say is, in all likelihood, with all of this mail-in voting that we're going to see, we're not going to know the results um, of the election for as long as a week or 10 days um, after people you know, go to the polls. And uh, that is a cultural shift. That is something that we're going to have to prepare for. We've never been in a situation like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it totally changes the way we think about elections, election night, uh, what the networks are planning and the idea that this could go on for, you know, a week or more. Of course, we went through that in uh, 2000, Bush v. Gore. Nobody knew who won after the election. I'm just riffing, though, on how the elections are going to come off. I'm thinking of all those uh, states where Republican legislatures have passed very strict voter ID laws, right, where you have to show your picture in order to vote. So somebody shows up at the polls wearing a mask and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> the poll worker says, take it off, man. I got to see who you are. Anyway, uh, all sorts of possibilities uh, that uh, we could think about. Look, before we get to uh, Perez, uh, our first guest. We should also mention Jenna McLaughlin's uh, report on the U.S. intelligence community investigation into how the coronavirus got started. Now, we still don't know the traditional, you know, the conventional answer is it was the bats at the open air market in Wuhan. But there are people in the U.S. intelligence community taking seriously the idea that this could have been an accident at a one of those Chinese labs near the open air markets where they were doing research on bat viruses. And I think the consequences of that, the, the potential consequences from that investigation are going to be huge. Uh, first of all, it's going to you know, it refocus attention on China and how transparent they've been and how the Chinese have conducted themselves. But beyond that, if it was a man-made accident, uh, you know, we'll get into this with Jenna, but man, the liability issues there are just uh, through the roof. Yeah, and important to say uh, accident, uh, you know, as opposed to right. an act of terror, because there is no evidence of that at all. That, of course, is the nightmare scenario that national security officials and uh, public health officials have been worrying about. But bad enough if it was an accident for the reasons that you uh, just talked about. Look, this was tricky reporting, and um, hats off to Jenna, who is a tenacious and very careful re reporter. It's tricky because of you know, transparency issues. The Chinese, uh, as we know, have not been very transparent about all of the issues and questions surrounding um, how this pandemic got started. And, and, and there's a precedent for that lack of transparency in China, but also tricky because there are a lot of political agendas at play. And I think we're going to increasingly see that the origins of this pandemic and the Chinese response to it and that lack of 
transparency is going to uh, be a big issue in the coming uh, presidential campaign between Biden and and Trump. And so we needed to be uh, very mindful of uh, people who have political agendas and are looking to blame the Chinese for political purposes. Uh, in this particular well, case, Well, we know Jenna who those had... people are. It, oh, it, it's right. the well, Trump you know. campaign. Uh, yeah. They yeah, have okay. made that a but... principal theme right now. Blame the Chinese. Don't blame us. Don't blame the president. Blame the Chinese. Yeah. And just to make the point, you know, Jenna's uh, we'll talk to Jenna about this, but uh, her sourcing for this story, which as always is meticulous, comes from career intelligence professionals. Uh, This is this is a scenario hypothetical as it is, but a scenario that uh, people in the intelligence community are looking at very seriously. So it's a fascinating conversation. It's a great show. And uh, let's get to it. We now have with us Tom Perez, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee. Chairman Perez, welcome to Skullduggery. It's great to be with both of you and with all of your listeners. To virtually be with us uh, as we do all our podcasts these days. So, uh, Mr. Chairman, a lot to talk about here, starting with what impact the coronavirus pandemic is having and going to have on our election. And let's start with you've still got Democratic primaries coming up June 2nd, a whole bunch. Wisconsin seems to have turned into a bit of a fiasco with the uh, court rulings preventing mail-in voting. How do you see the June 2nd primaries coming up? Are you going to be able to conduct them safely? Is everybody going to be able to cast a ballot who wants to? Well, that's, we're uh, making sure that we're prepared for all these primaries by ensuring that people can vote safely and not have to make false choices or unconscionable choices between their safety and their right to vote. That's exactly what Republicans tried to do in Wisconsin, and here's why they tried to do it. They saw a real opportunity to steal a state Supreme Court seat because the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic in Wisconsin is in Milwaukee, and African-Americans have been disproportionately impacted. And Republicans shamelessly saw an opportunity to exploit that. And so uh, notwithstanding efforts of Governor Evers and Democrats, we filed a lawsuit to provide alternative opportunities, and and, uh, Governor Evers tried to postpone the election unsuccessfully. Republicans rammed it through, and it backfired miserably. And, And it backfired because Democrats And we were proud to be part of this, working with the state party. We organized people around a very uh, aggressive absentee voter campaign. There were still a number of uh, voters in Wisconsin who were unlawfully disenfranchised. They they made a timely application for a absentee ballot, and it didn't arrive in time for Election Day. And um, notwithstanding that, Democrats won the race. The Supreme Court seat went to the Democrat overwhelmingly because we were organized. And and that's what we're doing moving forward. Uh, You mentioned the primaries in early June. I think it's really important across the country for voters to have options in how they vote. In person, having robust early voting. If you have robust early voting, you can eliminate long lines because people have 
many days that they can choose to vote. If you have no excuse absentee, if you have vote by mail like California does and Arizona and uh, Oregon, Washington State, other states do that, providing options for people is not only a way to increase turnout among eligible voters, it's a great way to ensure safety. And that's what we're going to be doing in the primary season. And that's what we're working for for November, because we need to be prepared this November to ensure that everybody has an opportunity to vote safely and through whatever means they want to vote. Choice gives people best opportunity to vote. Can I just ask, one one issue in Wisconsin was the mail-in ballots under the uh, what was proposed by the governor could still be counted even though they weren't postmarked by election day. Now, there's been pretty standard practice for mail-in voting absentee ballots that, you know, it does in the past that you do need a postmark by election day. Otherwise, you know, people can see the results on TV and then decide, I don't like that. I'm going to vote after the fact. How do you prevent that from happening? And do you agree that at least ballots should be postmarked by Election Day? Well, well, here was the problem in Wisconsin. The Republicans are trying to make it as hard as possible for people to vote. So the law that exists in Wisconsin says that it puts you through a number of hoops to get an absentee ballot that are really unnecessary. You have to have a witness sign your form. And most importantly, it has to arrive by election day. People made timely applications for absentee ballots in Wisconsin the week before, but because they got such a avalanche of absentee ballot applications, there were people who did not receive their actual ballot by election day. So they were disenfranchised. On election night, I spoke to a woman, mother of two small children, undergoing treatment for cancer, can't go to the polls to vote in the middle of a pandemic because she's immunocompromised. She was told after she made her timely application for a ballot that it would be there in time for her to have it postmarked by election day. And what happened was a the federal judge in that case said that as long as it was postmarked by election day, it could be counted. And she never received her ballot by election day. So she was disenfranchised. And that happened to about 15,000 people. And the way to address the concern that you raised is to make sure none of the results are released until after all the ballots have arrived. Chairman uh, Perez, let me, let me just follow up on that. If that is the remedy, and I think most experts believe that we're going to see massive mail-in and absentee voting this time around, more than by far more than ever before, how soon after Election Day do you think we'll know who our next president will be? Well, you know, I'd rather get it right than you know, get it at 10 o'clock on Election Day night. So what I think the contours of a solid vote-by-mail operation are the following. Number one, postmark by election day and then received. In California, I think, it, I think it's a week that it has to be received in. And, and, and part of the reason you want to give a week or 10 days is you have a lot of um, military and overseas voters. And I don't want our service members serving our nation to be disenfranchised because it took a while for their ballot to get in. 
And so the other thing is you want it to, you want the postage to be paid. You don't want to have any barriers to, for participation uh, for people. Uh, you want to make sure one of the requirements in vote by mail is what are called signature match. You want to make sure that, that your signature on your ballot matches the signature on file. And the problem we had with that, guys, was oftentimes the people who are examining signatures aren't trained. And so a lot of people were disenfranchised unnecessarily uh, because of poorly trained folks. So there are things that we can do to make sure that vote by mail works, works effectively, doesn't disenfranchise folks. And again, Washington State, Oregon, um, you know, Arizona, a number of states are already doing it. And I think we should allow more states to do it. And that's what we're fighting for now in one of the uh, upcoming stimulus bills is to include more money uh, and provisions that will enable us to be prepared. This is a preparedness exercise. We cannot replicate Wisconsin of two weeks ago in November. And God forbid, we hope that won't be the case in November, but we must be prepared in every state to allow voters to vote by mail if the circumstances require. So just one quick follow-up question on that, because, I mean, you're talking about potentially not knowing who our next president is going to be for like a week or maybe 10 days after November 3rd. That's a huge cultural shift in this country. I wonder uh, what the DNC is doing, what you're doing to prepare the electorate for that possibility and election officials around the country. Well, again, you would have, um, you know, many votes would be reported on election night because I mean, let's let's use the example of Arizona. Arizona is a vote by mail state. The vast majority in this past primary, more people voted by uh, mail in 2020 than voted in the entire 2016 primary. So when the polls closed on election night, primary election night in Arizona, the results came in. Uh, quite quickly because the vast majority had voted quite early. And if there are other ballots that trickle in at the end, if it's a razor thin margin, yes, it could affect the outcome. But in most cases, you know, that won't be the case. And so we will we will know on election night in most states where things stand. And if we have a vote by mail state that is really close, I would rather be in a position where everybody's vote got counted. I think that should be our gold standard, is that everyone who wanted to participate was able to participate. Uh, Mr. Chairman, before we get to the uh, general election in the fall, you've got a convention coming up. Uh, You've delayed it, pushed it back to August, but a lot of questions about whether either party will be able to hold a convention, a real convention with thousands of delegates congregating, in your case, in Milwaukee. Tell us where things stand on planning for that convention, the likelihood that it will have to be virtual rather than real at this point, and if so, how will you pull it off? Well, we uh, moved our convention back five weeks because we felt that that would maximize the potential to have a very robust, muscular convention in Milwaukee. I'm really looking forward to having an in-person convention. At the same time, we're not going to have our public health head in the sand. We we uh, postponed it because in our consultation with public health officials in Wisconsin, 
it was clear to us that we have a much better chance of being able to accomplish our goals if we had pushed it back five weeks. And that's exactly what we did. And uh, we're planning for an in-person convention and hoping for an in-person convention. But we're also, and this is what preparedness is about, we're, we're planning for every other contingency. I think we're going to be able to have a in-person convention by the time we get to August 17th. And I'm looking forward to it. I, I'm looking forward to highlighting our standard bear, Joe Biden, and our, our female uh, running mate, uh, who will be <laughs> history making uh, with the vice president. I love saying that every time. And, uh, and again, we're, I'm optimistic that we'll be able to do this. When will you have to make the call definitively one way or the, or the other? We still have a, a fair amount of time. And you know, folks in Milwaukee have just been spectacularly helpful, accommodating, flexible. We work very closely with the city of Milwaukee and with the state. And the hospitality industry there has been exceedingly flexible. They're excited to showcase Milwaukee. And uh, they understand that this is an unprecedented uh, pandemic. And so they needed to be flexible. And, and their flexibility is enabling us to really assess the situation on the ground in real time so we don't have an artificial and unduly early deadline to say uh, put up or shut up. So I'm, I'm, that's why I have a lot of confidence that we can have a exciting week there uh, with our standard bearers and showcasing our values. And again, I'm, I'm excited about what we just accomplished in, in Milwaukee. We've got a lot of momentum in Wisconsin. We've been doing a lot of organizing there and I want to use this convention as another organizing opportunity. And again, we're going to make sure it's safe and sound. And Mr. Chairman, let me ask you about that, because, you know, there is something in between a virtual convention and a convention like all of the other conventions we've had in our history, where, you know, thousands of people are congregating. Everyone, all of us have been to a lot of conventions. We know how, how close you are to people. So are you making preparations for you know, social distancing at the convention, uh, having a, a fewer number of people allowed into the arena? Are you in touch with hospitals to make sure that there is enough capacity in the event that there is an outbreak? I mean, what kind of planning goes into putting on a physical convention when, you know, the virus may have receded, but there may still be threats out there? Well, we, uh, we work very closely with federal, state, and local officials. Um, the Secret Service oversees both the Republican and the Democratic conventions. Uh, we've got, and there's a very experienced team that's been on the ground, by the way, for months. Uh, th this is a big event. And uh, so you don't simply wake up three months before and say, okay, let's start thinking about it. And that's why we've been working for some time. There's a very, very robust healthcare infrastructure in the Milwaukee area, in Milwaukee County and the city of Milwaukee. have been working with health officials there to understand the situation on the ground and to be prepared. And that's what that, I mean, we're, we're going to do the opposite of what this president is doing. This president has been chronically incompetent in his response. He continues to fail to understand the importance of testing. Uh, if we want to get the economy rolling again, you got to have testing at scale. That is a basic concept that he does not get. So we're, unlike the president, we will be prepared. We are prepared and we're talking on a daily basis with our colleagues. We, we have a whole team of people who have been on the ground in Milwaukee since last year 
And so we're, we're not just arriving on the scene now. And, and our, our teams are working hand in glove with the local officials. And we will be ready. We will be safe. And we will be, I think, very successful. Before you get to the convention, whether you can have a real convention, there's still a campaign to run here. And um, every day, the president is out there at these White House briefings, uh, giving his perspective on the pandemic. Uh, And the vice president, your party's uh, presumptive presumptive nominee, is holed up doing uh, podcasts and, uh, and, and videos at his home in Delaware. A lot of challenges to running a virtual campaign. Are you concerned at this point that your party's message is not breaking through because of both the president's briefings and the media's uh, obvious concern with covering every aspect of the pandemic? Well, every day the president gets out there in those daily infomercials that he calls a press briefing. He highlights the chaotic, incompetent, ill-informed, inconsistent message uh, response of this administration. I mean, the original sin of this administration was what they didn't do in January and February. And it is, you know, this president didn't cause the coronavirus, but his incompetent response has led to so much suffering, uh, so much uh, additional deaths, uh, the the economic collapse. And the vice president is, he is a seasoned veteran. He came in with President Obama in the midst of the Great Recession, two wars. He oversaw the implementation of the Recovery Act, and he did so flawlessly. You look at all the stories now about this um, business fund and, and the misappropriation of funds to companies that uh, don't need it as much as small businesses. Again, a chaotic response, even Republicans criticizing the administration of the program. And so what we have on the Democratic side is a leader in Joe Biden who is made for the moment. People want competent, experienced, progressive leadership. Leadership that understands that we all succeed only when we all succeed. Leadership that understands that We need to lead the world, not simply lead the nation. And Joe Biden is that person. And and you know, you ask about how do you how do you break through? Well, look at Wisconsin. You know, that was in the middle of the pandemic and and Democrats came out in force. If we weren't in the middle of this pandemic, we would be talking about lights out turnout. Don't forget, Joe Biden outperformed Barack Obama in South Carolina in the primary from 2008 to 2020. More people turned out in South Carolina in 2020. More people turned out in New Hampshire in 2020. Then we had record turnout on Super Tuesday. Democrats, not just Democrats, but Democrats, uh, moderate Republicans, party of Lincoln Republicans, I call them. So many people understand that this president simply isn't up to the task. And that's why we need to elect Joe Biden and again, we've got our virtual clipboards out. Um, you know, we, are, we, we trained 7,000 digital organizers in the last month alone. We are moving forward. We're aggressively hiring. We're proud to be handing the vice president uh, the most robust infrastructure that I think the DNC has ever handed off to a nominee who was a non-incumbent nominee for president. And I am proud of that. And, and that's how 
I think we're going to continue uh, to get the word out uh, across this country. We need a return to common decency. Uh, we need a leader like Joe Biden, who's both a dreamer and a doer. He's dreaming big things for so many people, and he has the capacity to get things done. We need him desperately. So one aspect of the campaign that may be challenged a bit right now is fundraising. And there are new fundraising numbers that came out this week that showed that uh, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party find themselves in a pretty deep hole, $187 million behind Donald Trump and the RNC. So what, what needs to be done to make up that shortfall? Do you have to make it up? How much of a challenge is fundraising when the Democratic candidate is, as, as Isikoff said, holed up at his home in, uh, in, in Delaware because of a pandemic? Yeah, the vice president raised $46.7 million in March. That was his best month. And uh, the bulk of it was small dollar, I think $40 average donations. Hillary Clinton in March of 2016 raised $29.5 million. So there's real excitement out there. Do Republicans outraise Democrats? Absolutely. You know, when they passed the tax cut bill in 2017, that was a pay-to-play bill. You know, in 2006, you know, when uh, Democrats took over the House, you know, the Republicans outraised them two to one. And, and you know, when uh, 2017 and 18 and 19, I was constantly being asked the question, wow, Republicans seem to raise more money than you. Well, you know what? You need to raise enough money to implement your game plan. And, and the fundamental flaw that the Republicans have is that, yes, they have money, but they're morally bankrupt. Their ideas are morally bankrupt. If money was the only thing that mattered in politics, they would have won at scale in 2017, 18, and 19. And the reality is exactly the opposite. Democrats have been winning. And I'm proud of what we've been able to raise. We're able to build a very muscular infrastructure that we're handing over to the vice president and um, his team. And again, you know, healthcare. The issues that matter most are the issues that have motivated people to get to the polls. They want leadership with character. Uh, they want leadership that will have their back. And that is why we've seen great turnout in the Democratic primary. That's why we uh, won all these elections over the course of the last three years. And by the way, Donald Trump tweeted three times on April the 7th on behalf of that uh, Supreme Court judge, judge um, the Republican in, in Wisconsin. And it didn't, didn't help at all. You know, remember last year in um, Kentucky and Louisiana, those governor's races, he, he personally traveled there, put his name on the line and couldn't drag those Republicans across the finish line. One more fundraising question here. The Biden campaign's answer to that, uh, answer to the fundraising shortage, one of its answers is to embrace a super PAC, Priorities USA, saying that that's the designated super PAC for Democrats to contribute to. Now, I watched all your debates in which Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders excoriated the other candidates for taking money from billionaires and millionaires, which is precisely what these super PACs are set up to do. Take unlimited donations from wealthy people, seven-figure checks. Does it make you at all uncomfortable to have your party relying so heavily on a super PAC that can take unlimited donations from extremely wealthy people. 
Well, listen, I'm, I'm a big supporter of campaign finance reform. I'm a big supporter of eliminating dark money. You look at H.R. Uh, one, which is a campaign finance reform bill, the, the, the first bill that was introduced by Speaker Pelosi. I am confident that the principles in that bill are going to be the principles in our Democratic platform. We don't have that now. And so the notion that you unilaterally disarm when the other side has all these people spending so much money to reelect this president, <clears throat> I'm not a fan of unilateral disarmament. I want to well, change the system. Absolutely. That- That was not an argument that carried much sway with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders during the primaries. Well, again, um, I want to elect again. I want to change the law. I I think we should absolutely eliminate dark money, have uh, pass H.R. 1, make H.R. 1 law. And in order to do that, we need to have Democrats in charge. But uh, I don't believe in unilateral disarmament. And that's the implication of your uh, of the question. Why don't we let the the other side, the Koch brothers, I mean, buy an election? That's exactly what they're trying to do. And so we're going to compete, and we're going to compete. The, the vice president is doing a great job in in raising money, and the you know, priorities in other organizations have been out there pointing out the uh, trail of broken promises, the incompetence of this president. And again, if we want to change our campaign finance system, we've got to elect Democrats. I mean, this is John Roberts in the Roberts court. They said corporations are people, too. Uh, That was a new one to me. And uh, that's where we have to uh, go at this. Chairman, I want to ask you a question that relates to your previous incarnation as uh, labor secretary during the Obama administration. We are now in a moment when there are parts of the country that are starting to open up their economies to stand down from um, these restrictive stay-at-home measures, letting businesses open up. American workers are going to be expected to start going back to work in some instances. You have divisions between governors and mayors in, in uh, some states, Georgia, for example, that you know, dis- disagree about how to do this. How do you think, as a, as a former labor secretary and someone that understands the labor markets, how we should be doing this? How do you avoid uh, certain inequities? Because there are big parts of our society, people who can work from home, uh, like Isakoff and me, who can do this podcast from here, others who have to go to work. Talk about that a little bit. Sure. Well, thanks to the incompetent response of this president, uh, we have fallen off a cliff. Ten years of remarkable job growth that President Obama and Vice President Biden helped usher in have been erased in the span of eight weeks. We're looking at 30 million people out of work, and our our overall workforce is about 150 million. So 20% of the workforce is out of work. 70% of the workforce can't work from home because they're picking up the trash. They're they're first responders, they're grocery clerks, they're, they're doctors and nurses. And they're not in a position to work from home, unlike uh, the three of us. And I want, and everyone wants to get the economy running as soon as possible, but you have to do it in a smart fashion. And this chaotic, incompetent, ill-informed response to this crisis from this president 
is digging a deeper hole. I, I invite all of your listeners to take a look at a study that was done in the aftermath of the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. Back then, the cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, the twin cities right next to each other. Minneapolis had very strict social distancing uh, provisions and, and they shut things down immediately when this pandemic hit. St. Paul took the opposite approach. We don't need to shut down. This isn't a big deal. And uh, researchers back then looked at which economy came back better. And the answer was Minneapolis. And it was a clear answer. And, and the problem with this president's incompetent response is how can we come back at scale when we don't have testing at scale? Vice President Pence promised that by the end of March, there would be 27 million tests available by the end of March. I think we've just crossed the 4 million people having been tested. We're something like 40th in the world in per capita testing. The original sin in this administration was what they didn't do in January and February. We're paying a price. I want to open up the economy as soon as possible, but haste makes waste. If you open up the economy and open that restaurant and we don't have testing and the person making your food or serving your food or a customer eating your food is positive, well, then we're going to make matters worse. And that's why we have to make sure that we're doing this in a smart fashion. We all want to get the economy moving as fast as possible, but we have to be smart. This president has been chronically incompetent in his response. He has pitted states against states. He's even pitted governors against mayors within states. And that is a textbook example of crisis mismanagement. So I invite your listeners to take a look at that study. The New York Times did a story on it. I have the study. I've read the study. It, we need to be informed by science in making our decisions about uh, reopening our economy. Mr. Chairman, for Years ago this month, the Democratic National Committee learned that its computers had been penetrated by Russian military intelligence hackers. As you look at things right now, first of all, are your computers secure? Have you detected any signs that any outside malicious actors are trying to penetrate them? And if so, what are you doing about it? Well, listen, uh, four years ago, we were hacked. The purpose of the hack was to get dirt and foment unrest within the Democratic Party and to help elect Donald Trump. And they succeeded. Four years later, we had almost two dozen people running for president. It was a, the biggest field ever on the Democratic side. Everybody said they're in it to win it. And if they don't win it, they're going to support the nominee. We now have a nominee sooner than ever before. We have made critical investments in our infrastructure, including our cybersecurity infrastructure, our data technology infrastructure that have enabled us to help candidates up and down the ballot win elections. I have no doubt that the Russians are still trying to interfere in our elections. I have no doubt that uh, they are still trying to penetrate our systems. I think our systems are far more uh, muscular in our ability to defend against that than we've ever had before. Again, I understand that every single day we're going to have 
bad guys who are trying to penetrate, but we have a great team that is enabling us to play far more robust defense in that area. And you know what? We're more united uh, than I have seen us in in so many years. Everybody understands that our unity is our greatest strength. Look at the last couple of weeks, everybody coming together behind the vice president. And the vice president is working tirelessly to earn the votes of everybody, regardless of who you supported in the primary. He understands that uh, votes aren't a right of his. Votes are something to be earned. And with the work we're doing to make sure we are cyber secure, to make sure that we are muscular in our organizing infrastructure, our, our data infrastructure, our voter protection infrastructure, our communication infrastructure, I come to you all uh, in this moment of grave, grave threat to our democracy. I am chronically optimistic that we can win this November and take back our democracy, but only if people get out there and vote. And that's why I'm so appreciative of the two of you, Mike and Dan, for talking about voting. We've got to make sure that everybody has the right to vote and the capacity to vote in a safe manner in November. And that's one of the most important things we're working on now at the DNC. So it's, it's been great spending time with you uh, virtually and with all of your, all of your listeners today. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much, Chairman. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. Take care. We now have with us Yahoo News ace Intel reporter Jenna McLaughlin. Jenna, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks so much for having me. So we wanted to talk to you about a piece that you did recently and some of the reporting you've been doing on the origins of coronavirus or COVID-19, which does seem to be a bit of a mystery. And there are increasing accounts or speculation, perhaps, that it may have been man-made after all, or at least have emanated from a Chinese lab as opposed to simply bursting from a live bat or other animal. Tell us what we know right now about the origins of COVID-19. Sure, absolutely. So when I started reporting this, I was really focused on what the possibilities are based on the available evidence of the available science, as well as what the intelligence community, the U.S. government is actively investigating. And I think the important sort of distinction at the top is that this is something that, according to scientists, based upon their study of the genetics, is not man-made, it's not a weapon, it's not something that's been tinkered with necessarily, but it is possible that it was a natural sample you know, recovered from the wild, perhaps in a bat. There are many different scientists within that region that have gone out to different far-reaching areas of China to take bats and and study their various different viruses. So it it is possible that one of these labs in Wuhan, several of which are involved in in, uh, virome projects, studying these things for good reasons, may have had this sample. It may have escaped either through a member of the lab becoming infected or, you know, a sample not being handled properly when it was disposed, something like that. Just to be clear, Jenna, I just wanted to follow up on one point, which is that what has given some credence to this theory is that there is a 
Chinese lab that has been working on bat viruses. That's just a few miles, three miles from the wild animal market that everybody has previously assumed the virus came from, and that the proximity of that lab to the market and the fact that they were doing work on these very viruses has raised the question about whether that lab, it could have been an accident at that lab that allowed the virus to escape. Yeah. So to clarify, there are actually three different labs within a pretty close distance of that market that do some of this research. And those include the Wuhan National Biosafety Lab, which is sort of the very first publicly acknowledged lab within China that has the highest biosafety standards and would potentially be working with infectious samples. That also includes the Wuhan branch of the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And that also includes the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which has sort of lowered safety standards. But that's an interesting distinction that I can go into more. But they were working under sort of biosafety level two, which is kind of the mid-tier standard, uh, which actually is the universally accepted standard. But it's it's not very high. So, Jen, I, actually, I want to get into some of those details. But first... I want to talk a little about uh, your reporting, because this was not an easy story to report. Your piece, as far as I can tell, is was and may still be the most exhaustively reported story on this subject, but it took a long time to actually be in a position to publish the story, and there were things to be wary of. You know, First of all, I think you were concerned about political agendas. This is, after all, something that the president of the United States has been calling the China virus, and China has become a big political football in all of this. And this is a difficult reporting, you know, by definition, because of the science, and, and it's just a very complicated area of reporting. So you went into this thinking early on that this might be a conspiracy theory. At a certain point, you thought, wait a second, this actually may be credible and deserves real attention and deserves to be written about. So tell us how you got there. And was there a kind of a moment when you realized this is serious, this is something that we should write about and publish? Sure, absolutely. And I I think that process is important to talk about just because you're right, it's a really politically fraught story. And I thought about that a lot as I was working on it. And obviously, all the editors did too. So I, I think Based upon where my reporting started, obviously, since coronavirus became to be a problem, I mean, I think within my circles, it it was being talked about more frequently in mid-February, and I I did some sort of preliminary reporting on how the intelligence community was looking at it. But I was communicating with a source a couple weeks ago, I think about three weeks ago now, who said, we were talking about something unrelated. This is somebody I trust, somebody I've known for years. And they said, I'm surprised that you're not looking closer at the accident theory, the biolab accident theory. It's being briefed to the president now. You know, it's something that the intelligence community is taking seriously. And my initial response was, really, isn't that some conspiracy theory about a biolab that Senator Cotton has been pushing? And, And they said, no, you know, there was some sort of disinformation and conflating going on at the beginning. But in reality, the potential that this accident happened, you know, a perfectly honest mistake that was later covered up, like that's still something that can't be ruled out. So I said, okay, well, this is somebody I trust. That means that I'm going to at least take this seriously enough to start asking around. But I knew that I wouldn't do something with it unless I sort of met a certain threshold, not only of just understanding of the science, but also 
a wide enough net of sources and experts with people with direct access to information about not only what the government's looking at at various levels, you know, the White House and NSC is important, but that is potentially politically fraught. So I wanted to make sure I sort of got down to the agency level and understood how they were thinking about this issue. So by the time, you know, maybe two more weeks passed and I'd spoken to nine sources and, you know, some of them extremely, uh, you know, close to the information, I, I became more confident in it and felt like it was worthy of, of writing a story about in a very balanced way with as much context as I could possibly provide. And and of these nine sources, they were largely, if not all, career people, intelligence professionals, as opposed to political people who you might concerned would have a political uh, agenda. Yes, absolutely. And anyone that even could be sort of tied to the politics side of things, you know, I, I made sure to to balance that information. But yeah, it, it was pretty much entirely career experts on these. So let's talk about some of the reasons that intelligence officials, scientists, others who have been looking at this believe that this is a plausible, credible theory. Let's get into some of those uh, details. And And one question I have is, there has been, has there not, a concern among U.S. government officials about lax Chinese biosecurity? Yes. Yeah, I think that that's one piece of the puzzle here. There has certainly been concern. I know that the Washington Post reported there were some State Department officials who visited the Wuhan Virology Lab, and they had reported back that there were some safety concerns. I think based upon what I looked into and the scientists I spoke with, as well as USA Today's amazing 2015 investigation into lab safety worldwide, this is really an issue that spans the entire globe. Most of the samples of coronavirus that are not SARS or MERS are actually all universally handled under biosafety level two, which is, you know, not that strict. And many of the scientists I spoke with said that that's not nearly strict enough to protect against something that's potentially infectious and could spread from humans. So, you know, it's, it's not just a China problem here, but it's certainly part of the equation. You know, there was a uh, video that circulated of a one of the Chinese scientists at one of those labs, a guy named Chan uh, Junhao, who's uh, been described as a leader in bat virus work. Last December, there was a seven-minute video, Youth in the Wild, Invisible Defender, that circulated showing him doing this research, uh, boasting how China has taken the lead in global virus research and uh, reports that at least on one occasion he had failed to wear protective gear in a cave that he was doing in where he was retrieving bat urine. Is that a, uh, a marker in this investigation for U.S. intel as to whether or not this guy and his research could have been the source of the accident, if there was an accident? Details like that absolutely are, are of interest when you're looking into the origins here. It's it's funny, I can hardly picture being one of those scientists who goes out and finds bat samples and accidentally, you know, gets peed on, having that be the subject of this massive international inquiry a couple of years later. You know, accidents happen, humans are humans. What's interesting from the perspective of the intelligence community as well is just the lack of information they've been getting from China on the coronavirus from the beginning. I mean, back in February, I reported that the intelligence community was being enlisted to help try to figure out what was going on. 
in China in terms of responding to the, the virus, the outbreak, in terms of what the numbers are actually looking like instead of what's being publicly exposed. So I, I think that the final sort of conclusion of this, whether you know the, the video of the bat droppings is helpful or not, is that at the end of the day, to sort of definitively prove this, you'd need a whistleblower who said, yes, we had that strain of coronavirus in our lab. And by the way, there are, you know, a ridiculous number of, of coronavirus varieties, many more than I had previously understood. Or you would need, you know, communications intercepts from officials there who were talking about a potential accident. Like you'd need something like that to sort of really come to a conclusion that this is a more more likely possibility than just a a potential. So uh, two questions for you. First of all, it wasn't just American intelligence officials and scientists who were looking at this possibility. Early on, it was actually Chinese researchers who were uh, speculating and even theorizing that this may have been a lab accident. And you write about that in your story. Tell us about that and what happened to the research that was published on this on this issue. Right, right. So two researchers at South China University of Technology had posted some preliminary, a preliminary paper on a uh, social networking site for scientists called ResearchGate. And in that paper, they said that the killer coronavirus probably originated from a laboratory in Wuhan. And they suggested that, you know, this is probably a reason for us to reinforce our safety procedures, especially in higher risk laboratories. And then Within you know a week or two of that coming out, they withdrew the paper and they told Wall Street Journal that there wasn't evidence for those theories. It was speculation. Um, but what's interesting about that, whether it was speculation or not, whether it was informed or not, Chinese officials are really cracking down on the ability of Chinese researchers to actually publish academic research on the origins of the disease. Two Chinese universities recently posted notices saying, you know, you can't publish this. Uh, so it's it's a continuing issue with uh, censorship in China. Now, all along, you've been really, you know, you've been very careful to say that this is a theory. This is something that uh, Intel officials, scientists are looking into. But there is uh, heretofore no actual evidence that this took place. What are the theories that kind of cut against this uh, hypothesis that it was an accident. And I will note that I think last week, the I think it was the Wuhan Institute of Virology or one of these labs came out and addressed the theories that it was a lab accident and pretty forcefully denied it. So what, what did they say? What were the reasons given that this was not an accident? Right. So, I mean, the, like you mentioned first, they've vehemently denied it from the beginning. And then I think on the other side of this is really just scientists. There was an article in Nature, which is a prominent science journal, where those scientists sort of went into the details about why they believe it is most likely a natural disease that came from the wild, whether it was a bat or another specimen that either came into contact with people through consumption or it was transferred to another animal. They just believe that based upon the science for something that has emerged this new into the world, essentially, there wouldn't have been time for it to be collected into this lab, for any sort of mutation to occur between a pre-existing virus that we've already known about and this sample. They said that based upon the science, and I'm no scientist, so I'm not going to try to fully go into that, but they essentially say that um, the mutation possibility is also fairly unlikely. 
So I think the science is really what ends up uh, defending the side of this probably being natural. I mean, so just to be clear right now, this is something that's being actively investigated by the U.S. intelligence community. Is that the case? And if so, I mean, are they preparing a report uh, or testimony for Congress or, you know, where do things stand on where the U.S. intelligence community is on this? Sure. So it's absolutely being actively investigated. That was the the piece of news that I was working so hard to drill down upon. That was definitely something I confirmed throughout. There were several folks that sort of hinted to me that there were indications of, of more evidence than has been publicly shared and didn't want to go into further detail on that. But beyond that, it's, it's unclear how far they are along. Uh, I think if they had a smoking gun at this point, I would have found out about it or at least had it hinted to me that it, it was there and it was forthcoming. So I think that that suggests that they're still sort of in this interim phase. They're, you know, hoping for a whistleblower, uh, hoping for more concrete evidence that this is the case. I think we can. Uh, this is something right, that they're ahead. briefing the White House on almost every day, right? That they're continuing to tell them what they're coming up with. And, and this is a piece of that equation. Right. One of the things that you had been trying to confirm was whether President Trump had been briefed on this. I think we can assume uh, that he has been. And he, he even addressed it at one of his uh, coronavirus briefings, if in somewhat oblique terms. But I, I recall him saying, if this was an accident, China won't be punished for it. He, clearly, he was referring to what you've been investigating and writing about. It's possible he said that in in a bid to try to get them to own up to it. I, I'm not sure. The the relationship with President Xi is always an interesting subject, I think. But yes, he, he sort of did allude to that after. I think Fox News more confidently reported that their sources thought that this was a near certainty, which is, is not the conclusion that, that my sources came to. So obviously, given the uh, Trump campaign's increasing interest in making China, an issue in this presidential campaign, blaming the virus on China, blaming and then trying to draw in Biden's connections to the Chinese uh, is going to be a principal theme. This investigation would carry a lot of political weight if the U.S. intelligence community were to come to the conclusion that this did emanate from a Chinese lab. But beyond the political implications, just think of the potential legal liability issues that could arise, the lawsuits that could be filed against the Chinese lab, against the Chinese government for covering up, and if indeed it was an accident for the accident in the first place. It seems to me that that could, you know, we could be talking about this for years into the future um, with the potential for litigation. Yeah, I mean, several of my sources who I've kept in touch with have definitely said that that's something to be looking out for is uh, the importance of litigation, people filing lawsuits. Somebody said to me today that there are uh, there are already cases surfacing. I hadn't had the time yet to track those down, but I think that there will be a lot of people who are seeking, you know, reparations if, if that's indeed the case. All right. Well, last question for me, and I hate to end this on a, on a scary note. So maybe Isakov has something more lighthearted after I get done with this question. So, you know, you were very careful to say at the outset that uh, no one believes this was a, a man-made virus, uh, that this was a weapon of, you know, bio war or a, a synthetic 
weapon. But for years now, uh, we've been hearing that terrorists have been trying to create uh, such a a weapon, including viruses that could lead to a pandemic. Uh, Al-Qaeda has been suspected of, of, of trying to do this others as well. Is this just the stuff of of thrillers and scary spy novels, or is this something that uh, the U.S. intelligence community is really worried about? Because I'll tell you, if it is something that is within the realm of the possible, what we are going through right now is really going to get the American people's attention uh, about the prospect of something like this happening. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What's interesting about that is that uh, when I was at Foreign Policy Magazine, I actually did a big piece on the subject exactly. And it is a huge concern to the intelligence community. And when I actually engage with some of the folks who track potential bioweapons, just the ease with which you could do this kind of work and the difficulty in which uh, it would take to actually sort of know what's going on and prevent it before it actually happened is, is massive it's pretty terrifying. It was probably one of the more terrifying subjects I, I reported on. Okay, Isakoff, what, what well, do you have to make us feel better? I have, uh, I have nothing uh, uh, amusing or uh, clever to say after that other than, um, wow, it is pretty alarming. And uh, I should point out a little preview. We're going to have Lawrence Wright on the show this Friday, who's written a fantastic new novel about a uh, pandemic that at least uh, I haven't finished it yet, but uh, raises the question, it raises this precise question as to whether the bioengineering uh, could be the source of a pandemic that plagues the world. Um, yeah, that, I got to say, this is going to be a great interview. It's an amazing novel. It's amazing the extent to which in writing fiction, he was able to preview so many of the things uh, that we are now going through and also goes to show that uh, timing is everything in life. (laughs) He's got good timing for this book. All right. Well, our timing is that's uh, on Friday and uh, we'll be releasing the uh, pod right after that. But for now, Jenna, thanks once again for joining us and your great work. And we will definitely be having you back. Looking forward to it. Take care. Thanks to DNC Chair Tom Perez and Yahoo News National Security and Investigations reporter Jenna McLaughlin for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.